right club. Be the right club today. Johnny, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Chris Kirk is today's guest. Uh, it already feels like a long time ago that he won the King and the Bear Classic uh, last week, week and a half ago here on the Corn Ferry Tour. First start on the Corn Ferry Tour in like a decade, and he wins it. He's got a pretty amazing story, and uh, I'm excited for you guys to hear it, so I'm not going to take too much of your time. Uh, over the past weekend at the Travelers, Will Gordon earned himself uh, quite a few more playing opportunities. His T3 finish got him special temporary membership. He had the most birdies in the field with 27, which by my quick math is almost seven per round. I know it's not the toughest golf course in the world, but you got to hit the shots. And Will did it uh, under supreme pressure, about as much pressure as you can play under as far as uh, trying to get a make a livelihood on the PGA Tour. He did that with the Callaway Maverick Max Driver, Apex Pro Irons, Jaws Wedges, and his Toulon San Diego Stroke Lab putter. Um, while we're on the topic of Callaway staffers, they want to let you know that the latest installment of the Henrik Stenson Almost an Hour podcast is available this week. In it, you can hear Henrik's thoughts on younger players on tour like Will Gordon, and of those in the new crop, which ones will have the best career of the next 20 years. Also, you can hear what he thinks about how the tour is handling the COVID situation, whether he thinks they should pause or not. Uh, and in lighter news, who's Henrik's, Henrik's favorite Ryder Cup partner of all time? All that and more on the Henrik Stenson Almost an Hour podcast. Without any further delay, here is Chris Kirk. So it seems like you kept the game sharp during the layoff. What what are games like in in Athens? And take us to what you've what you've got on your own property as far as uh, you know golf practice facility. Yeah, on my my place, we live in Athens, Georgia, on uh, about forty acres or so south of town. I've got a putting green room and a driving range out back uh, where I can hit balls and you know work on wedges and just do whatever. I think. Uh, a lot more baseball gets played on the driving range than golf, but that's how it goes with a bunch of little kids running around here. Do you use a, a backyard driving range as much? Like I don't have one of these, of course. I mean, most people at home don't have one of these. And I, in my head, I think, you know, I would be there every single day if it was right there in front of me, but is it like that in reality? No, I don't use it as, as much as you would think. If I'm really going to go try to get some quality practice in or, or play, obviously I'm still going to go out to the golf course, but it's, it is awesome being able to go out, you know, I'll go out with the kids after dinner and hit a few balls. Or if I'm working on something or mess around with a different club, it's, it's awesome to be able to just walk out your door and go hit 10 three woods down there or whatever. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's been fantastic to have and, and really a beautiful part of the property. Where do you play your golf when you're home and what are, uh, what are the games like there? Who do you play with? Uh, you know, are there other pros in the area that you tee it up with often and kind of, kind of take us to what that looks like? Uh, I play mostly at Athens country club. Uh, there's a few other places in town, Jennings mill country club. I'll play a decent amount and uh UGA course as well. Um, I haven't been able to play, out there they've been shut down for for a number of months now during the shutdown over the last few months uh stewart sink has organized a good many games uh, at tbc sugarloaf and then ben kenny the the owner of golf club of georgia had some money games going on out there as well so i would maybe play one of those a week something like that 
uh, just to try to stay somewhat sharp. Somewhat sharp, I think, is uh, is a bit of an understatement. You just had a your first win, first win on the Corn Ferry Tour in ten years. Uh, you haven't played mm-hmm. on the Corn Ferry Tour in ten years. I, I want to know. You know, we're going to get to kind of uh, all the other things you've had going on in your life here in in recent years. But what is it like for a you know a seasoned veteran on the PGA Tour? to drop down a level to play a corn fairy event what is how, how do you you know what's really different about that and how do you approach that you know compared to a pga tour event as far as approach i wouldn't say i approached any differently but it, it definitely felt different you know you, you playing colonial the week before even though there's no fans out there there's still tv production crews they still had ropes up for some reason i'm not really sure why but and there's still just kind of feels like a, a pga tour event a lot going on with the Corn Ferry Tour event, there's obviously no spectators, there's no TV crews, any of that kind of stuff. So it definitely felt different. I've actually played a, a few mini tour events this year, uh, so I wouldn't say it felt quite like that, but definitely different. Not a whole lot going on. One of the funnier things that happened during the week, you know, we're coming down the stretch on uh, Saturday, last round, trying to to win the golf tournament and knowing we were in pretty good shape, but there's no leaderboards mm. out there at all. So I've always heard people complain that the PJ tour app does not update as fast as they would like for it to. And I got to experience a little bit of that <laughs> firsthand in the 18th fairway with my phone out, trying to get the thing to refresh so that I would know if I needed to make par or birdie to win. Um, so we were just kind of laughing, my caddy, uh, Michael and I were just kind of laughing about that, trying to, you know, it's, it shows you how different things are right now that we've, uh, got our phones out trying to look at scores and, and figure out what we need to make on the, on the last hole of a tournament. Um, but co- competition wise, you know, obviously guys are shooting nothing out there and, and, uh, everybody that you play with flies at 300 and it's just, the future of golf you know you got a lot of a lot of guys out there that are you know mid to early 20s and i was the the old man out there for sure well it's funny you you didn't really help my case that i've you know i've tried to make over the years which is if you took a top pga tour player and if they played a season on the corn Ferry tour and i think i asked jt this i can't remember if it was on the pod or not but it's like hey if you played a season down there like what would you how many times would you expect to win and his answer he was quick to say like not not as much as you would think like you just you don't necessarily just drop down and be able to dominate there especially just because of the way those golf courses play compared to the PGA Tour. They're not as good as separating out the field as, as PGA Tour courses are. So in particular, this course, you shoot 26 under par. What? How are you able to separate out yourself out? I know you only won by one, but how are you able to be the low man? What are the, what's the difference maker, I guess, on a golf course like that where it's just a pure racetrack and it's just a, a birdie fest? How Does that change anything in like in the competitive landscape of the event? I think the difference for me this past week was really just avoiding mistakes. You know, I mean, I made double bogey on number 10, uh, in the last round, but that was, other than that, I had no bogeys the whole rest of the week. Um, so, you know, everybody's going to, going to make some birdies and, and get it rolling. But I was able to, to really maintain my momentum almost the entire week. Uh, you know, whenever I did, get in a situation where I needed to get up and down for par. I did it, you know, a few times I would have a 10 footer for par and I, and I kept making them. That was the the difference for sure. I think this past week that I was able to, 
you know, keep up with everybody as far as making birdies. And then for the majority of the week was able to eliminate mistakes and, and not ever lose any of that momentum. Well, you've, you're kind of ruining a good storyline that was going, which was that you were first alternate for RBC and that you chose to go play the Corn Ferry instead and went and won. But can, can, you, uh, can you explain kind of how that wasn't necessarily the, uh, the case? Yeah, that was not the case. I don't really know what I would have done if I had actually been the first alternate uh, where I would have gone. Because you didn't go up to RBC, right? No, I did not. So our, the, the RBC field size was supposed to be 144 players but um there were more more exempt players than that so they play beyond the field size they did the same thing in la earlier this year i think around the the start of the tournament there was maybe 150 151 guys so in order for an alternate to get in even though i was first alternate in order for an alternate to get in the field size would have to go down below 144 so in effectively i was seventh or or eighth alternate or something like that Um, so there was no real real decision to make like i said if if i had been actually first alternate i'm really not sure what i would have done yeah so what does this win i swear i don't mean this as as uh as directly as i'm I'm gonna ask it what does this win do for you because it it of course is great to go out there and win a corn ferry event but it you're not going to compete on the corn ferry tour and it doesn't really do a lot for you on the PGA tour in terms of status. Am I understanding that right? What, I, I hope that's a, a fair question. I'm just wondering what your, uh, what your big takeaway is from it. Yeah, that's a fair question. Um, in the short term, uh, my hope is that it gives me a little boost of confidence yeah. in the long term, my situation with my tour status right now, I have 10 more starts on my medical extension, which should carry me through roughly to the end of the calendar year. And then at that point, um, I will either have regained my full status on, on the tour or possibly could end up in the 126 to 150 category or possibly be the worst case for me would be in the past champion category. So if that were the case, I uh, would probably play a pretty good bit on the Corn Ferry Tour next year. And so because they have kind of a two year long combined season this year and next year to get PGA Tour cards for the following year. Um, it'll pretty much just give me a good head start mm. uh, with having a win on that tour to be able to try to finish top 25 there and get back to the PGA Tour that way. Uh, so it makes it kind of makes my worst case scenario um, a little bit better. Okay, that makes sense. That 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 is some good color to add because I'm looking at it. I'm like, man, this is great that he won, but. Oh, how does he get? He gets no <laughs> FedEx Cup points for this, and it really doesn't contribute much on the on the medical front. But um, well, I, I want to know, and, and from what I've gathered, it's 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 pretty close as far as at least from a ball striking perspective, comparing how you're hitting the ball right now, how you're playing right now. With you know, I think you peaked at I think 16th in the world at one point. Just compare it. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to say as good. What's different, or, or kind of compare your game now and how you feel now compared to as good as you've ever felt. I would say ball striking wise is as good or possibly better than it ever has been. Physically, I feel very good through some some of the different workout stuff that I've done and some swing speed stuff. I'm actually hitting it further than I than I did previously in my career. I, I gotta say your 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 Instagram videos don't keep up with Bryce. <laughs> they don't keep up with Bryson's. I'm not, that's all, that's all I can say. No, no, and they never will. <laughs> <laughs> that's for sure. Um, but you know, for me, somebody who's, 
who's typically been someone that's been in the 112, 113 mile per hour range with their driver to now, you know, just a normal cruise control speed of around 116 and the ability to swing 120. That's a big difference for me. It kind of tips me from from below average to to keeping up with everybody. I'd say my putting has been very inconsistent over the last few years. Uh, and a lot of that's probably just confidence. Uh, my short game has, has been good, especially the last, the last two weeks. My, my short game was excellent. So I'm hoping to be able to, to continue that trend. And then last week I, I putted really great. I, I found a little something and was able to get into a groove, just trying to, uh, honestly, just trying to be a little bit less perfect. I think I got a little bit too caught up in in trying to. I was working on all the right things and and uh, working on working on my stroke and and really working hard on my green reading and all that kind of stuff, which was all great stuff in practice. But I was probably bringing it to competitive golf a little bit too much and trying to be too perfect when I was putting, and, and as opposed to just having it be a little bit more of a of a reaction and a feel based thing. So. I was able to to do a better job of that last week, and uh, and thankfully everything came together. But uh, more than that, I would say really just from from my hiatus last year and then having another break this year, it's been uh, it's been difficult at times mentally to just be out there and have have the same amount of self belief that I had when I was you know playing really well and in the top 50 in the world. Um, so, you know, hopefully last week will be a step in the right direction as far as that's concerned. And we'll be able to continue to build some momentum going forward. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Herbal Active. You know Herbal Active. They are, of course, the CBD company of choice for all of us here at No Laying Up. Listeners of this podcast can use promo code NLU20 to get 20% off all of their CBD products. A lot of people ask me, what is CBD? What makes it different? It is a 99.5% pure CBD product. Uh, It's used in a lot of different ways, but it contains zero THC. CBD is a naturally occurring compound found in the cannabis plant, but will it get you high? No. The answer to that is, of course, no. It is legal in all 50 states. It's got a lot of different uses. It's great for inflammation, pain, anxiety, muscle spasms, helps you sleep. You can put drops in your coffee. I go straight to the tongue before I go to sleep. I've been sleeping much better for the past six to nine months, however long we've been uh, working with Herbal Active, and it's been a great partnership. So go to HerbalActive.com, U-R-B-A-L-A-C-T-I-V. Use promo code NLU20, and they got a great frequently asked questions section there of the website. Uh, Any questions you have about CBD or their product uh, in particular? This one's a water-based one, which is important as your body is much better equipped to handle uh, handle a water-based solution than it is an oil one. So again, herbalactive.com, use promo code NLU20. Let's get back to Chris Kirk. Yeah, you touched on a lot there um, as far as, you know, the things that I think would led up to what you announced on May 7th, 2019, which is when you announced that you were taking a leave of absence from the PGA tour to deal with depression and alcoholism. And I kind of want to get into the timeline of things here. And I I think I've read all there is to read. And I know that there's a lot to uh, address in this segment, but you seem very open and honest about everything, which I really do think that so much can good can come from that. And just from the interviews I've, I've watched from you too, it seems like you get, a lot of energy from that. But I want to start at that point when you announced that you are uh, going to be stepping away from golf. 
you've taken the the proper steps it seems to address things since then but what was that like at that moment to announce that to the golf world i, I guess what was did you have any fear about taking that step you know at at the time that you know a lot had led up to that and so that that was what felt like a a real last resort for me um an act of desperation to try to to somehow salvage my life really you know i had i had first tried to stop drinking in november of 2018 that was when i uh kind of talked to some close friends family my inner support group on on the tour and and told them that you know this is something that i'm struggling with and i'm and i'm gonna stop i'd appreciate any you know support it didn't go well kind of battled it for six months or so multiple relapses and was just miserable you know my i think that i i I definitely struggle more with with anxiety than than depression it can can lead to that but i think my my anxiety had kind of been building for for a few years and i started drinking more and more as a as a way to combat that and then once i took the the alcohol, which was kind of my medicine away, my anxiety just got worse and worse. And, uh, so I just wasn't doing well. I was trying to, to control an uncontrollable situation and, uh, was thinking along the lines of, I can do this, I can do this. And then, you know, after, after, uh, there were some episodes and in, including the, the last time I, I drank April, April 28th. So I, I count April 29th as my, uh, sobriety date. Uh, just a, a few real wake up calls to like, okay, not, not only are you not completely in control of this, you have zero control over this. And, uh, so stopping playing golf, I kind of had to get to the point where I need to get away from this because if I don't do something about this now, and if I don't figure this out, then I'm going to lose everything anyways. So what does it matter? You know, I didn't, I didn't know what was going to be the result as far as, far as from a tour status standpoint. And I didn't care. You know, I, I called, I called the tour and, and just said, Hey, you know, this is, this is what I'm doing. I understand this is probably not going to be covered under any type of, of medical extension. And that's fine. You know, I'll, if I decide to play golf again, then I'll, I'll address it then. But for right now, I'm, I'm going to just get away from it for an unknown period of time. And, uh, they were, they were very supportive, uh, right away. And they didn't tell me anything right away, but, uh, you know, Andy Pazder, Ross Berlin, uh, Jay Monahan, they were, extremely supportive of me and uh were were really happy for me that I was, you know, doing the right thing and taking some some steps to try to get back uh to a better place in my life. And uh Jay Jay was great. He called me to check on me every now and then uh throughout the whole process, Andy Pazer as well. I definitely felt a lot of a lot of love and, and support from those guys. I was able to to find the right people here in Athens, people that are that are in a similar situation to me, and and really kind of get some answers as far as what was happening to me and and why it was happening, and and find the the right path for me to go down. 
you touch on a couple things here, and I, I guess I'm, I'll leave this up to you as to where you you think this story starts. But uh, hearing you kind of explain what you mean by anxieties or what your anxieties were and how that contributed to the alcohol, uh, along those same lines, I just want to kind of understand what your relationship was like with alcohol. Maybe maybe around the time that you know you really started to feel this this uptick in anxiety and, and how those two work together. And again, that's up to you kind of as to where that, uh, where that starts, which, which one leads to what? Well, I mean, first of all, I had always been someone who really liked to drink, um, and you know, like to drink socially and, and, uh, was all for a party whenever, but I think that it, it changed when, when my anxiety kind of got worse. And so the, the way I look at it is that I would, uh, when it started getting bad, I would take a, take a very rational thought, something that I would be worried about, you know, worried about that, that I played bad one day or, or worried about whatever, it doesn't matter. Something, you know, we all worry about stuff. It's very, very natural. So I would take that thought and then I would, that would change to something else. And then that would change to something else. And that would change to something else. And it would be sort of a snowball effect. And, and within the matter of a few hours, I would get to the point where I was like, I, I've got to sell my house. I, I need to quit and, and find another job. I've got to do, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to afford to pay our electricity bill next month. And all these, all these things that when, you know, when I look at it now, and if you had looked at it from the outside, then you would say, uh, that makes no sense. Like it's completely irrational, but at the time it was, it was very, very real, just as real as the first thought was. So as that, as that kind of continued to happen, I, I just was basically searching for a way to shut my brain off and stop all that. Mm. And so that was, that was what I did, you know, and I, and I remember it very well, just liked to be able to drink to the point where I could just sit there and stare at the wall if I wanted to and not think about anything. And so it was effective, effective medicine for a while, but then eventually it stops working and it can, can make it even worse. And so that's, that kind of touches on where, when I did stop drinking the first time and tried to, then, you know, a lot of that, a lot of the anxiety, anxiety was able to kind of flow out without anything to slow it down. And so at what point are you, I guess is April 29th, again, 2019 is when the the day you stopped drinking your sobriety date. Is this when you finally, I guess, take the step or, or what triggers you to, to understand that you need to actually address the anxiety and then the alcohol kind of is a, is a, you know, a contributing factor down the road. But if I'm addressing the anxiety, I have a much better chance at addressing the alcohol issue. Well, I didn't see it that clearly at, at that time. I just basically knew that something is very wrong and I've got to do something about it if I don't want to completely crash and burn here. Um, so through talking with doctors, psychiatrists, therapists, getting involved with a support group here, uh, kind of a combination of everything. Um, I was able to, to really gain some mental clarity, especially after, you know, it, it takes a while 
when you stop doing something like that and your body kind of gets used to, um, I was just kind of, I just felt strange and not good for a while, for weeks. And then after I was kind of my body normalized a little bit, uh, then I was able to, you know, through the, the various avenues of, of help that I was getting, um, uh, was able to just get a lot better picture of, of what was really going on and kind of learn about just how, how powerless I, I was and what I needed to do to not necessarily regain power. Cause that doesn't happen. Uh, but to, to make the shift from all of this fear, anxiety, and worry about the future and about what's going to happen next to shift that to fully embracing the complete uncertainty of, of life. Uh, something that, that I was deathly afraid of to now where I see it completely from the other side of the, of the mirror where I, I mean, now I, I think, you know, how, how awesome is it that, that I don't have a clue what's going to happen next, you know, but as long as I, as I do things the right way, as long as I treat people fairly, as long as I make sure that I'm a, a good husband and a father and I, I stay in my, in my program and, and stay connected with the people that I care about, it doesn't matter what happens next. It's all good. You know, I, I'm ready for, for whatever. And, and I'm excited about that life is, is a total mystery. I mean, it'd be boring if we knew, already knew what was going to happen. Well, any chance I get to make this point, uh, I do. And I'm sure some people roll their eyes at it because when you and I say that tour life, isn't necessarily always glitz and glamor where, you know, you've done quite well with career earnings and you get to play golf for a living is kind of where the buck stops with a lot of golf fans or they don't want to see it any other way than that. But you're on the road a ton. You're away from your family in your case, because the way I understand it, they, you know, once you had kids, they weren't necessarily traveling with you very often. You're in hotel rooms alone. You're in locations for a long period of time. It's not like a an NBA team flying as a team, you know, from city to city. You kind of are in these spots for a long time by yourself. So did that environment that you're in week in, week out, did that, I mean, how much did that really contribute or double down on some of the issues you were having? It absolutely did. Yeah. And so I've kind of changed the way that I, that I do things and I travel now, but yeah, the time away from my family definitely wore on me and just getting to the point where you may, maybe even before, you know, cause there's, there's no like clear definite point where you go from a, from a social drinker to an alcoholic. It doesn't happen overnight. So as I was trending in that direction, my physical fitness became worse and worse. Uh, my mental clarity and judgment became worse. So uh, obviously my golf game was not keeping up with where, where it was. So at the combination of the time away from, from my family, which I hated, and then I, I could feel myself slowly declining. And just the, the pressure of, of trying to combat that and still be competitive and be one of the best players in the world. And then you kind of, on top of that, you know, when you're not playing as well as, as you used to and 
you know, I, I've, I don't, I don't say this, this much because I completely understand the golf fans that say, you know, our, our life is gravy. We make millions of dollars. We travel and play awesome golf courses and that's all true. But when you're out there and you're getting your brains beat in every week, I mean, no matter what level you're at, failure sucks. And it's not fun. I mean, you go out on, on the PGA Tour and you miss a bunch of cuts in a row, it sucks. I'm sorry. It, you know, People may or may, or may not want to hear that, but it's the truth. And so it was a combination of, of all those things for me, for sure. Yeah, I, 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 a lot of people roll their eyes whenever I try to compare anything with the pro game to to the to the mid am life. But I, I has helped me understand so many more things about the day in day out stuff that you guys go through. And I can say that even two day tournaments where I'm staying overnight, if you play bad in round one, you immediately just want to be transported home. Like you don't want to draw. You don't want to. You just like I just want to be on my couch right now. I can't believe I have to teleport. St- yeah, I just want to be yeah. done with this. And it was a horrible <laughs> feeling. And I'm playing for nothing, not my livelihood. It's hard to like, explain kind of where you're coming from on that. But I I do think I un- understand it to one maybe one percent of what you guys go through. Yeah, sometimes it can happen around the turn on Thursday. Yeah. You know, tele- teleport, get me out of here. <laughs> Well, so how how did you how did this like affect your play? I mean, were you ever to the point where you're drinking before or during rounds or there was, you know, were you dealing with hangovers, you know, for morning tea times? How did it, you know, tangibly affect the way you were playing professionally? Um, hangovers sometimes. Um, it's strange. I, I'm not sure why this is, but I've never really been much of one to drink while I'm playing golf, not even at home socially. I just always saw that, you know, this is, this is my job. I shouldn't drink while I'm doing my job. You know, I'm thankful that I, that I thought that cause you know, who knows what could have gotten to, but, um, yeah, I mean, I would say, yeah, I, I played hungover sometimes and it typically would have been in that case where you're talking about where you play bad on Thursday and you're just going through the motions on Friday to miss the cut and get out of town. But not, you know, probably not as, as often as you would think. It was always like a, a balancing act for me, trying to figure out, okay, how much can I can I drink tonight where I won't feel terrible tomorrow? But then also, like, I knew, and this probably should have been more of a warning sign than it was. But if I ever did have the occasional off night where I didn't have anything to drink, I'd felt, I felt weird, weird the next day from that. Hmm. It was uh, this juggling act that was just, it was exhausting trying to balance all that. And then all the other stuff that I had going on of the the anxiety and all that, that kind of thing. It was, yeah, it was, uh, it was exhausting. I think that's the best word for it. Yeah. And I'm always, I'm, I'm just very hesitant to ask questions about alcoholism, mainly because I think about four years ago or so, we had David Faraday on the podcast, and it, it was supposed to be a 30-minute interview. It got chopped down to 15 minutes, and I, I'm rushing through a question, and I honestly think about this almost daily, asking it this way. I said, you know, you've been through some things in the past. Those troubles are behind you, and I'm, I'm trying to get to a question, and he just kind of stops me and says, like, no, that's that's not how it works. Like, every day is, no. every day is a struggle, and I just felt 
so horrible about that afterwards and and so like just that I didn't understand what I was talking about. But as I say that I, acceptance is a word that I hear so often when it comes, you know, to alcoholism and I, and I hear you speak on it and it sounds like acceptance and giving up the con- or kind of understanding that you're not in control. Is that, I guess, mm-hmm. when did you start to learn that lesson? How did you learn that lesson? And I kind of want to know like what also you're doing, you know, how often you're going to meetings or what you're doing to treat it on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, I mean the the program of recovery that I've chosen to to take uh, has taught me a lot about about all that, and I, I don't necessarily see it as a as a daily struggle. It is a daily thing, and you know I definitely stay very well connected with my my support group in various different ways. Uh, but yeah, it's it is definitely something that you don't complete the the 12 steps and then say, okay, that was great. I'm just going to go on with my life now. Um, it definitely doesn't work that way. It's one of those things where you just have to, you have to keep in, in mind. And I have to remind myself constantly is that there's a very clear reason why I'm doing so much better than I was two years ago, you know? So you can't just, it's not, it's not like you, if you want to compare it to golf, you can't just practice for, a year or so, go shoot 65 and then be like, okay, that's it. I'm going to shoot 65 every day from now on. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. You gotta, you gotta keep practicing and, and keep working at it. But I don't see it as a, as a daily struggle. And I'm to the point where I am certainly not, not ashamed of it. And to the point where I, I would say, I don't even, I don't even regret any of it because look at all the the blessings that I've been given over the past year and look at how much happier I am and the mental clarity that I have and how genuine and strong the relationships that I have are with the people that I love. I, I'm in a better place now than, than maybe any other time in, in my adult life. So it sounds crazy, but, um, it's almost, it's almost a, a gift to be honest. And, uh, and I'm, I mean, I've learned so much about myself and I'm able to see things for, for what they are. I think when you hear that, hear me describe it that way, that's, that kind of gives you a glimpse into why I'm so comfortable talking about right. it and why I'm, I'm willing to be open about it. And you know, this is going to be kind of long-winded and, and maybe a two-part question at the end of this, but one thing, just working full-time in golf for three years now, I, I see just how prevalent alcohol is in general, and I'm not even talking about drinking on the golf course. I mean, it's just, I can safely say the night, the number of nights I drink per week has gone up just as a function of being around golf for, for what you know whatever reason that would be. So did you, I guess, did you hear from anyone in the game of golf maybe that, you know, that reached out to you kind of talking about some of the issues they maybe battle with alcohol and with your new perspective on on it are you able to maybe spot issues that other people out there either on tour or caddies or agents or anyone that's out there do you feel like you kind of uh have a, a new perspective that might be able to help someone on that you know before they even realize they need help yeah i have had a number of people reach out to me and it's uh you know it's an, an honor and a privilege to be able to lend any kind of words of encouragement or any advice or, or anything like that, that I can, you know, I'm, I'm here to, 
to help any other people any any way that I can. Uh, but no, I, I wouldn't say I really go go looking for it, or I'm not gonna. You know, people in in my situation, if someone has an issue and you just go go tell them about it, then they're gonna tell you to take a hike pretty quick. You know, um, I was I was definitely that way. You don't really until you have something slap you in the in the face you are the last person to know kind of that you're an alcoholic sometimes because you've built up this this whole system of lying to yourself and denial and justifying crazy things and and in your head it all makes sense you know i'm never gonna put anything on anybody obviously if somebody comes to me and and wants advice or wants help then i'm there no matter what Uh, but I'm, i'm not gonna ever try to try to tell anybody else what they need to do unless they ask yeah to be clear i didn't mean i didn't necessarily mean it that you would go up to people but i was just wondering if you know if if it's easier something easier to spot i guess or something that you would be able to recognize much faster now that you've uh you've kind of gone through it yeah maybe so but i mean a lot of people if they're if they're like me i mean i i don't i mean i think that my my wife had had an idea of what was going on, but I even was able to hide a lot of things, things from her. I mean, I was very careful about who saw what I was doing when and all that kind of thing. It was all very calculated thing for me because I didn't want, you know, something that I was not obviously not proud of and, and wanted to, to keep hidden the the best I could. Um, so yeah, you never know, but it's, I'm just happy to, to be a resource for, for anybody that, that has questions or wants any advice on anything in that realm. Well, I think that successfully, uh, you know, addresses the, uh, the this issue, and I, I promise we can have some more fun here on the on the back half of this. But this might not be the best transition to more fun, but this does have a happy ending, I promise. But I was walking out of the Memorial Tournament in I think it's 2018. It's a Friday evening, and I stumbled upon your group on the ninth tee. And it was you. I knew it was one. Of, I knew one of you guys were <laughs> were out there. I thought. I mean, I'll let you go ahead and tell tell no, the story. No, you tell the story. All right, all right. Um, the whole thing that that kind of blew up on social media, I thought it was hilarious. The the backstory is Friday afternoon, finishing on number nine, Muirfield Village Memorial Tournament, and I'm I'm uh, just kind of scraping it along, trying to trying to make the cut. I hit a really nice shot into there to about eight feet or so, and made birdie on number eight to get on the cut line, which I don't remember what it was, but that's irrelevant. I get to number nine, par four, pretty straight straight away tee shot, and then it's like a three three wood and then a wedge or a nine iron in something like that. And so I like to I, I don't like to hit three woods off tees, so I kind of hit my three wood on the ground to kick up a little bit of a little bit of grass and uh, give myself a good lie. So I remember this really clearly. <laughs> The grass was so tight. I like hit it and I couldn't get it up very high. And so I put the ball in there, you know, whatever. I'll just, I'll just hit it. So it's not sitting that good. And I cold top it. I mean, it goes, it went, it went pretty far for a top. I think because the turf was nice and firm. I got a lot of spring off the, uh, off the tee box. (laughs) So it went like 
went like fifty. Went like fifty yards. So Stat Tracker had it seventy six, if I remember right, and you you chimed in on Twitter no. and said it. There's no way it went that far. No, <laughs> I mean, like I said, it went far for a top, but fifty yards. That's about as far as you could possibly top it. And to be clear, we're not talking about a thin. Like we, it, it was no. a top. It was a top. Yeah, I hit the top of the ball and it went straight into the ground and popped up from there. Uh, yeah, cold top. And uh, so then I, I go up there and the rough was rough was uh, pretty thick, fifty yards off the tee box. Not hadn't been a whole lot of visitors to the rough there. And uh, so I chopped a five iron up there, hit a, hit a pitching wedge to about twelve feet, made it for par to make the cut on the number <laughs> on the number, yeah. And so then the you know laying up guys go with it to social media, and so yeah, it's, I said. I said not uh, definitely the under on the 76 yards, and also, I think that that was somewhere around my fourth or so career top in PGA Tour competition. Always with three wood, of three. I, I haven't had one since then. I'm probably about due, but uh, <laughs> I have. Yeah, I've tied. I remember. And that unfortunately wasn't even the first one I've done on a on a tee box. I remember I topped on a number, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four at the Honda one year, uh, probably about eight years ago, and a few few other ones. Uh, but yeah, always with three wood. That's that's the one for me. I'm not going to top it with any other clubs, but three wood, you never know. I just remember standing on that tee box and I was like, I think they can they can hear my heart beating. My heart started racing <laughs> when I saw that. I was just like, how is this possible? Like I was just kind of getting into covering golf full time, and I just it just blew my mind. I'm like, if this guy's topping it, how do I have any chance to ever be good at this game? And uh, then, but like when, then you made par. I was like, okay, it it like that's the difference right there. I mean, it wasn't. I'm, I'm you know I'm going to, you know crawling in a hole after top of that one, but uh, um, I do love that story. I'm glad we could finally get that one out there. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I had a, I had my experience of the previous tops to draw on that I was. <laughs> able to, I was able to persevere and, and just keep going. You, you kind of undersold it too. Cause you kind of blocked your, uh, punch out and it was in the right, the first cut of the right rough. And you had to, you had to cut it around the trees to get it on the green. And then you made the par putt. But, um, <laughs> so this is, this is a story I'd sourced from, uh, from a mutual friend of ours that, uh, I hope I'm allowed to ask about and you can share, but, uh, you had a great year in 2014 and I believe you were, you know, talked about being in there for the Ryder cup, potentially you, uh, were played a practice round at the British open with, with Tom Watson in 2014. And I'm wondering what that was like and kind of what, uh, what the conversation was like between you two on, uh, potentially being a part of that team. I guess I can tell the story. It's long enough, I've told, right? <laughs> I've told the, I've told the story to, to some friends and stuff, but never in public. Tom asked me to play a practice round with him at the at the British Open, and you know, I kind of thought that it was just sort of a you know get to know each other a little bit bit better. But by halfway through the round, I could kind of tell it was somewhat of a tryout, I guess, in his mind. And uh, so we're playing. Me and uh, me and Tom are playing a a two man game against Matt Kuchar and Justin Walters, who I don't know if you know Justin Walters or not. I've known Justin for a long time, South African guy, very good guy, good player. I can't really remember why he was the, the fourth in our group. That may have been somewhat random, but irrelevant as far as the story goes. So we've just, you know, I've just flown over from, from the John Deere 
the day before. I'm still a little bit foggy from the, the trip and time change and all that kind of stuff. And so I'm just out there playing, getting to see the golf course. And I think I, I made, uh, two or three bogeys and the rest pars on the front nine, no birdies. And so, um, Tom, we're making the turn and Tom starts like giving me a, a pep talk, like, but very serious, like, you know, come on, let's get, let's get going here. And, and, uh, I don't know, I've never really one that's responded well to, to pep talks in general, but, um, I just kind of was like, you know, Tom, it's Tuesday, man. You know, <laughs> like it's, and I could tell that was not, not the answer that he, that he wanted. <laughs> and I did play, I did play better on, on the back nine, but I think t- Tom and I, and, and I have a, I have a ton of respect f- for Tom and, and don't have a bad relationship with him, with him at all, but he's just a very, he's a very different mentality than me. I'm, I'm more laid back just kind of trying to take it as it comes. And, and, uh, Tom's more of a go-getter type of mentality, go make it happen. I remember later that week, Cause I think that's, I think that's my best finish in a major in my career. I believe I finished 19th. And so I was going to the first tee on Sunday and Tom was finishing on Sunday and he walks by me and can tell, you know, we were on like one of those little sky bridge things that they build out there to go over the crowd. So I'm good. He knows that I'm going to the first tee and he just looks at me like I've got three heads. Like he, I mean, after my performance on Tuesday, he clearly thought that there was like, where are you lost? Like, you can't, you can't be going to tee off now. <laughs> and then obviously I didn't, I, I didn't get picked for the, uh, for the Ryder cup that year. And so who knows if that, if that experience that week had, it had anything to, to do with it or, or not, but it's, uh, it's water under the bridge. I'm not, I'm not worried about it. Well, that year too, it was, I mean, you finished, you end up finished, you win in, uh, the Deutsche bank in Boston and it was your second win of the year. And that, that leaps you into first in the FedEx Cup standings. And you end up finishing second. But the picks were made so early that Bo, you know, Horschel obviously had went on that run, finished second, first, first. And he didn't make the team because it was too late. Do you think that things could have potentially changed if, the, you know, if they had made picks after the Tour Championship, which they end up kind of adjusting it after that? Do you think you would have had any better chance? Yeah, I mean, they definitely changed changed when they made the picks because of that year, um, and they they made the picks right after Boston, and I'd had a I'd had a solid year and and just won that week. But I mean, I understand that Tom, you know, Tom's not gonna not gonna make a pick based off of that that one week. Um, but yeah, I, I think that that it, obviously if they make the picks after the Tour Championship. Um, you know, I played. I played well. Finished fourth in the Tour Championship. Billy won the last two, two FedEx Cup events. So yeah, I think that if it, if the picks are made after the Tour Championship, then certainly Billy and most likely myself uh, would have been picked for that team. There's nothing that that any of us can can do about it now, obviously, and and not something you know. Obviously, I would have, I would have loved to have been a part of that team, but it's not something that I really had any any control over. So you know, I was just happy that I'd made a boatload of cash those, those few weeks. 
well, these are my words and not yours, but maybe it's a reflection of how well that team did that uh, some decisions were potentially made off of uh, some text messages that were sent and also a contributing factor. might have been Tuesday practice round at the British Open. (laughs) Um, Yeah, Yeah, I mean, whatever. So, all right, you said that boatload of cash. You finish, you make $3 million for finishing second. But after you you launch yourself into first place uh, in the FedEx, and I asked Webb about this too because he was in the situation I think in 2011, and he he admitted like there's just no way to avoid thinking about it. But h- how different is pressure of playing for potentially 10 million dollars compared to you know when you go tee it up in an event like you? It's more about you know the competition. The guys are really driven by the competition of a single event. How do you avoid the you know the carrot at the end of the rope that is the 10 million dollar prize when you're sitting at the top of the standings? Yeah, I think I think mentally it was made easier for me the fact that Billy was playing so well in the Tour Championship and that he was second going into it. And so once he kind of got out to the lead, it was it became very clear cut. You know, I had to try to to beat him to win. You know, if the guys that were you know he, he coming in the week, I think he was second. Rory was third. I don't really remember after that, but. If those guys are are laying an egg and not playing well, then you've got all sorts of different variables and scenarios that can that can play out. But in in that situation, it was very very clear cut. This is another another thing that I've that I've told some people and gives me a a much more clear you know when because it, it's easy you know say Sunday you you've made the cut you're not playing very well you just kind of you can some guys can kind of pack it in or whatever and, and not really care. But that year I was number one going into the tour championship over Billy Horschel by a half of a half of a point after the BMW, the third playoff event. And so obviously that half of that half of a point, and then they reset the points. So now I'm ahead by, by two fifty. So that half of a point can represent any shot in any tournament that I made the cut in that entire season. Mm. So because of that half point and me going into, into the tour championship as first, I finished fourth in the tour championship. I think Rory, uh, maybe also finished tied, tied for fourth or maybe tied for second. I can't remember, but I ended up edging him out and finished, finished second and made $3 million. Whereas finishing third in the FedEx cup is $2 million. So, also, if I had finished one shot worse at the Tour Championship, I would have finished third on the FedEx Cup instead of second. Hmm. So the way that you can look at that, if I had shot one shot higher in any of the tournaments that I played the entire season, it would have been a million-dollar difference. <laughs> Seems like you have thought about this, then. I have thought about this, <laughs> and I'm thankful that I ended up on the right on the right side of it, but... <laughs> Yes, one shot, one shot difference in any tournament that I played and made the cut in the in, the entire season would have been the, the difference in a million dollars. Pretty crazy to to think about that. Are you adding any of that up coming down the stretch at the Tour Championship, or is it is it feel different? I know you've played in you know you've played in Walker Cups, you've played in Presidents Cups, you've played in majors, but what that's what I'm trying to get at is like, can you avoid thinking about the money in that situation? Yeah. Well, obviously, I didn't know that full scenario but yeah i I did know that it it was looking like billy was was playing really well he had gotten off to a decent decent lead on on sunday and i didn't know the exact breakdown of how the all the fax cup stuff worked 
but yeah, it, it definitely was, was in the back of my mind that every one of these shots and every birdie I can make and every par I can save, I, I knew that they were all going to matter way more than just a normal, normal event. Uh, again, this is going back to my uh, our mutual friend source here, but uh, he is telling a story about you know when you won your first event. Uh, what, what was it called? The Viking, the Viking Classic. That mm-hmm. didn't have the Masters invite attached to it. But when you got you won McGladry, you were exempt into Augusta, and you guys. Mm-hmm. He tells a story, and you guys were sitting around talking about how you know for the first time in your life ever you could go and play Augusta National for you know anytime you really wanted to. What was that feeling like? That was so, you know growing up in Georgia, being a golfer. I mean, the Masters is it. You know, it's everything, and so yeah, to be able to just call up the pro shop and tell them you're coming. I mean, that's, I mean, who gets to do that? It's incredible. Yeah. I remember going over there a, a decent amount. I wouldn't say I, I wouldn't say I wore out my welcome by any means, but I uh, was able to go over there, you know, three or four times, I think to, to go play the golf course and, and just kind of get a feel for the place a little bit better and, and uh, try to be somewhat prepared for the, the shock of, you know, your first masters is a, is a very different experience for sure. I'm also supposed to get the story about how uh, how you met your wife. Yeah, my my wife and I met uh, on a blueberry farm in Mississippi, uh, which is where everyone dreams of meeting their wife. Of course, <laughs> that's why I, I knew um, that part. But are you just hanging out at a blueberry farm and you meet her? I need to hear the details on that. So, uh, a good friend, a good friend of mine. Uh, Clay Giles, uh, we went to high school together and also both went to Georgia. Um, his girlfriend at the time was one of Tawny, my wife's, uh, really close friends still is. So my friend Clay, his family had a blueberry farm in Mississippi. And so we were all, a bunch of us were all going down to New Orleans for the sugar bowl. And so it was kind of a good halfway point. So we met up there and, uh, spent the night and, you know, rode around four wheelers and took pistols out and shot trees and whatever, just did a bunch of good old redneck stuff and, and, uh, hung out. It was a great time. And that was, that was the first time I, I met her. And yeah, I I remember I was already graduated from Georgia and was about getting ready to start my rookie year on the, then, uh, nationwide tour soon to be web.com tour corn fairy tour and yeah it was a, it was a it was a group of people that i was pretty familiar with but i just remember being like whoa who is she you know why why have i why have i not seen her met her until right now you know um and so yeah it was a pretty it was a pretty immediate attraction obviously and and we started dating and and uh and the rest is history 10 years of marriage and three kids later. All right. Well, the rest of the stories they gave me are definitely off the record stories. So I think that, that brings us <laughs> about to the end. I hear some kids that I think are ready for you to, Another time. to rejoin the family. So, uh, Chris, thanks yeah. so much for uh, for taking the time and being so open about everything and uh, really shining a light on things. I know uh, a lot of people are rooting for you and are happy to see you finding success and happiness again. So really appreciate the time. Yep. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to do it. Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. That's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. 
expect 